Welcome to Ex Libris On Air and the stories behind the stories of today's literature and their authors. A presentation of Ex Libris Publishing, host Steve Jorgensen connects with a writer to share the vision and inspiration behind their works. Insightful, informative, and always entertaining, please welcome host Steve Jorgensen and this week's edition of Ex Libris On Air. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for Ex Libris On Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. Our book today is titled Demand Healing, The Impolite Study of Mood and Ego Remission. And our author is psychotherapist and author Russ Hoover. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. Glad to be here. This is uh, an intriguing idea. Uh, the idea of a demand healing certainly grabbed my attention. What is the purpose of the title, and how did you get inspired to put this book into print? Well, uh, the book is on uh, psychotherapy, basically, um, Jay, and um, uh, I, maybe my credentials, but probably could speak to those just a little bit. Uh, my first uh, 15 years in practice, uh, I worked, uh, I was employed at the uh, local medical college here, A.T. Still University, where I taught uh, interns and uh, medical interns and externs and psychiatric residents, as well as uh, graduate students from the, the university, which is Truman State University in Kirksville. <laughs> and, uh, and during that time, you know, like the psychiatric residents, they had to have 500 hours to complete their residency. But at the same time, uh, uh, the, the situation was fairly good because I had a lot of practice I was doing then. So, uh, you know, I'm not just somebody sitting out here <laughs> who's never had much acquaintance with it making some kind of statement here. Uh, you know, I've been in practice. I've seen thousands of clients and patients in, in therapy. So uh, that's kind of my, my, my background. So uh, what, was your, what was your question there? <laughs> Well, I've forgotten my question now that you okay. mentioned it. I, I think I've been on the couch too long. I was just asking. No, I haven't been. I'm sorry, Russ. I was just asking what motivated you to put this together. I understand your, your approach is a little bit revolutionary. Uh, why yeah. did you decide to, to put this into print? Well, um, knowing a lot about the different psychotherapies, uh, I um, just uh, you know, I thought, felt that it was kind of, well, I kind of wanted to write about some of the things I had discovered. So my, 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 actually, I, I would say I've discovered my own little brand. I'm, I'm a founder of my own little brand of psychotherapy. But, of course, it's based on what I've known about uh, therapy generally and what I've, what I've taught about it. I think one, another thing that kind of inspired me, not only, you know, I, I know about this stuff, I better write about it and let, you know, let other people know, is to, you know, pass on a little bit of what uh, I, you know, I've learned um, and, uh, you know, people have helped me get through school, helped me get where I'm at, and, uh, I, you know, I think I'm obligated to some degree to let people know what I'm, what I'm able to do and what I've found out. Expand on the term demand healing. What does that exactly mean? Well, uh, as I say in the preface there, uh, that can mean a number of different things to different people. I, would, I don't know, like, the average person might see the book. I kind of wonder what they would think that might mean. They might think it means that you're demanding a certain kind of, procedure or something <laughs> but um and you know that's i would say that i'm not going to complain about that kind of interpretation but basically the the idea is um uh, and maybe we can get into some of this is the, the therapeutic procedure uh I'm, I'm explaining how to use a particular kind of information like demand 
uh, and a demand is something with which is said with a lot of uh, let's say absolute certainty. Actually, in the uh, uh, copyright page, I, I define demand and also healing. So we got demand, which is a statement which is put in very uh, what well, absolute kind of terms, and uh, then that is used. That kind of a powerful information is used in uh, a healing. And uh, healing is a term that uh, uh, is uh, technically, I mean, I, I think it means a lot, of, a lot of things to different people, but uh, it's a, a cure that's um, based by on the body's own mechanisms. In other words, you're augmenting the client's uh, own uh, healing processes. And uh, it's kind of interesting that the uh, medical college of work was A.T. Still, this was his home uh, base. I don't know if you know, he started osteopathic medicine. And, of course, their original concept was self-healing, you know, right. augmented body. So it was kind of in, in, in conjunction with that, although I'd say psychotherapy generally is kind of a, a self-healing. Is there anything... Uh, this this book uh, sounds as though it might be a little complex for regular folks like me. Is this designed to be a supplement for students and maybe current mental health workers? Or is it a little broader than that? Well, I would say, Jay, it's a little bit of both. But uh, you know, I think uh, people that are associated with the medical field uh, would... Uh, and I think um, average... Consumers, at least maybe an average reading, they could probably get a, a lot out of the first section. The first section of the book really is just a, a critique. I'm saying, hey, why do we need another system of psychotherapy? And I'm saying, you know, here's some of the <laughs> some of the way that the current therapies work, which are really uh, one of the criticisms I make, for example, in one of the sections is that uh, a lot of the therapies are, are really treating the effect rather than the cause. They're not going after the cause; they're going after. The but right. back to your back to your question. Uh, it, I think probably basically, especially section two of the book, section three. There's three sections, and the section two and section three would be very good for, uh, and really probably is made for students of therapy or practitioners now, or maybe physicians or other uh, professional people that might be involved with it with the mental health field. I love the title of your first chapter, which, uh, since I'm Canadian, I uh, gravitated towards getting around Seattle with a perfectly good map of Saskatoon. Uh, evidently a little bit of humor and tongue-in-cheek interpretation on some of your observations. Yeah, one of the things I even say in the, in the book, I think it's in the first section, I mentioned that uh, to, to make it digest a little bit easier, I use humor. And I, I kind of use humor throughout the, the book as much as I can. I think some of it's kind of subtle, but it's. Uh, I think humor is a good mechanism to get people interested in reading. So uh, uh, also I thought that might help it be more less seamless technical. Anyway, if you can say something in a funny way, then that, you know, that can be... Uh, a lot of times that can stir people's interest. Yes. It, it, it certainly way. can, yes. Is there anything about your book that's radically different? Uh, your title and your approach appears to be radical. Right. Let me just say the approach is really totally new, and really the centerpiece of the book is Section 2. And in that section, I'm just I'm just explaining the, the basic functions of mood, how it works, and uh, basic properties uh, I have in that section, I, uh, which I call the laws of botheration. And botheration is a, is a term I used the word bother rather than some more technical term like desensitization. 
um, <clears throat> because I think most people understand what bothery is. <laughs> so, so we've got these laws about, actually there's three bo- laws of botheration. But it's just basic, it's like, like the subtitle is the advanced study. So it's a, it's a more in-depth study of mood. And I'm I'm saying these ideas that are presented are uh, you know they're they're you can't find them in any other book. Let's just put it that way. So it's just kind of basic, simple uh, kind of things about mood. For example, let's say if I told you a joke, let's suppose it was really not just an ordinary joke, but it was a joke you found really really funny, a super joke. How would you know it was that funny? Hmm. I have no idea. <laughs> he would laugh involuntarily, wouldn't you? Well, I mean, if it, there you the go. The funniest joke you ever heard, you'd, you'd be, you'd have a hard time holding it back. So, just a simple example like that, you'd say, "Well, mood occurs involuntarily," and the funnier the joke was, the harder you would have a harder time you'd have preventing your laughter. Mm-hmm. So, the other thing about mood, and that is the the more intense the mood the harder it is to uh, not express it or, or give yourself away. For example, if it was really, really funny joke and it was inappropriate for you to laugh, you'd probably be saying you'd have you know, um, a hard time not laughing or at least letting people know you're laughing. You have to turn your head or something. We, we forget that mood isn't just some uh, you know, empty thing. It's, uh, it's, you know, it's got substance to it. It's got an anatomical response. For example... A really funny joke, you might see that people's eyes are watering, their their face can flush, you're having, uh, you know, you're having these hormonal, these, these uh, transmitter effects that are causing these things in your body. You have a, probably a surge of uh, uh, neurotransmitter they call dopamine, which would be pushed in a little bit with uh, some norepinephrine. So, I mean, those are, those are going, those are systemic responses. Mood is really a systemic response, and it means it goes through your entire body. It gets in your bloodstream, the, horm- the hormones, you know, the, the norepinephrine. These things get in your bloodstream, and that's what you feel when you're having a mood. I was watching an interview yesterday that dealt with negative input and how it affects our lives, even though it may be benign in the way it's it's presented to us. It, it leaves a lasting impression. How do you deal with negative impressions that are programming individuals to make wrong and maybe depressing decisions? Well, if it was a clinical issue, um, there would be a compulsive aspect to it. If it was like there, like probably every day we're seeing some things that are really not, not positive. There are things that maybe are uh, kind of critical but necessary for us to look at. And uh, we, we, we kind of have, I, I say we have a prejudice against bad mood. Uh, because it, it serves a protective function, really. It's not, you know, it's one of, it's, it's a very uh, big uh, part of our you know, biology, really, our, our, our thing getting us upset, the mechanisms which get us upset. Yes. We forget about that. So, I mean, we say, well, it's, it serves an adaptive, protective function. Of course, the mood is, is unhappy. But in a clinical situation, usually you're having some really significant problem with their with a negative thinking. They're obsessing about it, for example. They're thinking about these all the time. So you have this, this chronic level of stress hormones that are running through the system, which uh, in that sense, it's, um, it's having a, a caustic and not really good effect on your system. 
Yes. One high-profile case would have been Michael Jackson, who as a child was, uh, you know, as a teenager, had had uh, acne issues and uh, carried that right. that concern with him uh, throughout his life. It was still a negative impact that, that affected him. Right. One of the... Some things that might be an issue for me, might not, but they might be my own personal issues, but there, there are a lot of issues that we call universal, like financial issues, but the way people look, typically, for most people, that, that can be an issue. They're, you know, they're picking around on their face. Of course, you and I are saying, well, hair looks all right, but they're in there kind of messing around with it because uh, to the, our self-image is, and really an important reason, our self-image. We want people, it's in our best interest for people to feel good about us. I mean, like, that's kind of what people, one of the things people look at, how, how they affect and how they interact and the impressions they make on others. Tell us what you would like readers to take away from reading your book, Demand Healing. I, th- I think uh, one of the, the uh, I'd really say for my own feelings, is the Section 2 and Section 3, because those are the more... Uh, let's say, innovative and new things they aren't going to get in any other book. The first section is just a critique of the current mental health system, really. Uh, the, the faults that, are in, that I see in basic psych therapies. Uh, I think one of the things people might get in reading my book is like, like if you read a book on physics, you might see how here's how gravity works. I even use an example saying, okay, gravity has this, this is the way gravity works. It bends space and so forth. I have a section on that. So say, well, you know, mood has this, the way it works. Like uh, uh, an example I use is for people who sometimes that I see as a client, I might, I might say, okay, so let's suppose you drove up to my house to visit me. You were a good friend of mine, but you see my car's been, somebody smashed in my car. It's all mangled in there. So you go in the house, and here I am sitting drinking a cup of coffee and watching TV. And, uh, uh, and I don't look like I'm bothered a bit. So why wouldn't I be bothered? And what we forget is, well, maybe, maybe I don't know about it. Sometimes you'll say, well, you're a psychologist. You didn't have to cope with stuff like that. Right. But maybe I just don't know about it. So you say to me, hey, Russ, what happened to your car? I say, well, is something wrong with my car? Well, yeah, it's, it's all banged in out there. <clears throat> so then how do I feel then? When you tell me, hey, your car's all smashed in, how would I feel then? Probably not really feeling very comfortable emotionally. I'm probably getting a little bit upset at that point, right? Right. But now, then I go out, probably rush out to see how, what's wrong with my car, and then I see, well, it wasn't my car. You you had mistaken my car for another car. I see my car's all right. So now how do I feel? Suddenly, I'm not bothered. So I was unbothered, but then I got bothered when you told me that. I go out and see it's not my car, and now I'm not bothered anymore. Now, what caused my mood to go up and down like that. What caused me to be in a good mood, in a bad mood, and then back to a good mood? Caffeine. No, no, it wasn't caffeine, no. Patient. I recognize it's not my car, so I see that it's not my car. So that conveys to me that there's anything wrong with my car, so suddenly now, I know you weren't lying, you just got to mix up with another car. It looked, looked a little bit like my car, but I can see my car's over there in the corner, and you didn't see it. <clears throat> So what I, I guess the, the point of that illustration is, what's turning my mood on and off from a, from a good mood to a bad mood to a good mood is not, you know, some, <clears throat> some serotonin or dopamine going off in my head. That's a secondary feature of mood. 
what is what I know. So mood is a function of awareness. That's one of the things we see. Mood is a function of awareness. But and the knowledge. first awe of botheration is you gotta know about it. If it's a bother, you gotta know about it, it's gotta be something not okay and it has to be something that matters to you. You have those three ingredients and once those and three the ingredients come together, I don't care who it is, you're gonna be bothered. So mood is caused when those three ingredients, you know about it, it's not okay, and it matters to you. If you take one of those ingredients out, if I know about it, it's not okay, but it doesn't really matter to me too much, I'm still not going to be bothered. So you've got to have those three. So I guess what I'm saying is that would be something most people would probably benefit about in their mental health daily, to know how mood works. It's not... You know, I don't take a pill to make these, these feelings go up and down. Second law of botheration is what causes mood's intensity. And that goes to the, the third part of the three ingredients, and that's how much it matters. Not just that it matters, but how much it matters. The more that it matters, the more bothered I would be. Right. I say, and uh, I say in, the, in one of the sections of the book, the rules that govern mood are more obvious as the mood intensifies. That's the way with any force. A good way to look at mood is just a force, okay? So mood is a force, kind of like wind, uh, amperage. These are forces, uh, like wind at two or three miles an hour, we we aren't going to be able to see the destructive properties of wind at a low low level. Same way with mood. And the more intense level moods are, the more uh, uh, caustic they can be to the system. So... Those are kind of, I think that would be a section, like section two is just an in-depth study of mood. I think a lot of people, even your average person, but especially more somebody just like a a professional or a provider, uh, would be, um, might be very useful for them to understand these things. Absolutely. You can predict these things. Yeah, go ahead, Jay. Yeah, I was just uh, going to suggest you highlight for the uh, listeners perhaps the most complicated or challenging part of writing all of the uh, material you've put into this book. You've got a long history as a psychotherapist yeah. and as a as a lecturer and, and teacher and, and a, a very broad background that you're incorporating into this book. Was there anything that was challenging about putting all of that experience into one 233-page read? Um, you know, I'd say really... I, this may sound silly, but I do a lot as a psychologist. I do a lot of paperwork, psychological reports. These things are really kind of dull and boring. The book, I really enjoyed writing a lot of the book. It was just it, sometimes it was time consuming. Sometimes I had to meet some certain deadlines. But I mean, in general, I just it's just kind of a type of writing I, I enjoy. I really uh, just to say, be honest with you, I, I really enjoyed writing the book. Um, another thing, I, 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 some of the things that are so new, I kind of realized that, uh, uh, that some of these things would be really maybe kind of very important for maybe even in a historical sense for people to know. I'll give you an example. One of the things that the book comes out, and I don't know, this is this as far as I know, I, I'm the only one that's ever said anything like this, and that is that thought of itself is never pathological. It's never irrational. One of the questions, how do we tell an irrational thought from a thought that's just wrong? You know, if I think your your name was Harry and it's Jay, then that's wrong. But it's not irrational. It's not something that's harmful. <clears throat> so I'm kind of looking at some of these very important aspects as they apply to psychotherapy because 
if you're thinking any thought, it's, it's just a thought of itself. You know, thought is localized in my brain up here. Mood, on the other hand, is systemic. So traditionally, there's four things they, they consider that are related to mental disorders. It's uh, abnormal perception, uh, delusional thought, uh, very gross abnormal behavior, and then emotional features. And what I'm saying in the book, all those are emotionally. The core of all the, the mental disorders is mood. And it's bad mood. It isn't good mood. <laughs> so those are concepts that you aren't going to get anywhere. And I just, to my, I, was, I enjoyed saying, hey, these are things people know. So the, the writing, I would say, uh, was really kind of fun. There was at times it was challenging. How do I say it? And how do I write it in a way that's correct, scientific, yet, yet interesting? I mean, I spoke earlier about you know, making things humorous and so forth as a way to help people enjoy the writing. That's a great way to do it, and that would certainly set your book apart from the rest out there, having a little humor along with some in-depth psychological profiling and and, uh, information that they can use. The title of the book is Demand Healing, the Impolite Study of Mood and Ego Remission, and our author, Russ Hoover. Russ, tell me where we get copies of your book. Well, you can get it on the Internet. Um, um, Ex Libris is the publisher. Uh, As far as I know, it's, it's... You, know, you can get it at Amazon, probably any of the websites or your local bookstore. You can have them order it. That's a great way to do it. And they can also keep in contact with you by following you on the Internet by putting a uh, search under your name, Russ Hoover, H-O-O-V-E-R. Thank you, Russ, for joining me today. Pleasure. For Ex Libris On Air, this is J. Douglas Barker. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Hi everybody, this is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Welcome back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for Ex Libris On Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. Our book has an intriguing title, California Slim, The Music, The Magic, and The Madness. And our author is Andrew J. Bernstein. Andrew, welcome to the program. Jay, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much. My assumption is music is an important key to this book, which is not a novel, but an autobiography. A biographical memoir. Tell me why you decided to write and tell your story. Well, Jay, again, first of all, it's great to be here and, and to talk about Slim. You know, I lived this um, adventure 
for 18 years, and the uh, opportunities that came my way afforded me a real inside look at a real seminal time in the music business in the San Francisco Cultural Revolution. And uh, I lived it, and when it when it ended, nothing really comes to an end permanently, but I uh, was aware that those 18 years I would eventually have to write about. You also had some interaction with Jerry Garcia, a well-known figure in the music industry. Well, I did, and at the time he was just happened to be a banjo teacher around Palo Alto, where I grew up, Palo Alto, California, and I was looking to learn how to play a stringed instrument, and uh, he came recommended as, as a teacher um, that uh, he might be able to help me out. So it was before the Grateful Dead, and there was a lot of music going on in Palo Alto at the time, but it was mostly folk music, of which he was a big part. You also have had interaction with other, what we'd call music luminaries, or people who are well-known, even Willie Nelson. That's true. Uh, when people ask for a quick synopsis of the book, I generally say it drops in in 62 when I was 14 years old with Jerry Garcia as my banjo teacher, and it ends on the backstage uh, western set of Warner Brothers Studio in Burbank for the premiere of Willie Nelson's first movie, Honeysuckle Rose, A Song for You. Amazing. Who do you think is going to find this an interesting read? You've got nearly 400 pages. I'm already interested, and I don't know the content. <laughs> well, um, when I wrote the book, and I have to tell you, I had... Uh, this was my first book that I've written, but I've been a writer, and I've done trade journal articles, etc., for years. But having known, knowing for so many years I was going to have to write this book, um, I don't think anyone really knows unless they do it, how hard it is to write a book. But the pleasure of finishing the book and having it in my hand, and Ex Libris did a wonderful job, I have to tell you. I was a pain in the neck. But the final product they produced was beyond my wildest imaginations. And your book uh, actually goes back into the 50s, if I'm understanding the chronological order of this, that is a long time back to be remembering stories and telling them. Did you keep journals by any chance? Well, um, yes, I did. The book actually drops in in 62. Uh, literally, the first page is, uh, is at my first banjo lesson with, with who would become the iconic Jerry Garcia. So it covers 62 to 80, which is 18 years. And um, I spent 20 years thinking about writing it. And I traveled the world for the International Shipment Company, of which I'm vice president. So when I got out of music, I went into um, international worldwide shipping. And I had a lot of time to spend going over my old notes and my old journals and getting and compiling this. And in 2000, I realized that I wouldn't remember as much as I needed to remember unless I really got on it. The book took 13 years, 10 years to write and three years to edit, and I was, Jay, actually able to go back and recreate the events word for word, picture by picture, and I substantiate all of that with an enormous amount of research I had to do to actually find the photographs and the posters from all the shows, and I didn't do all of them, there's no way I could have, but I worked at Fillmore for a while, for Bill Graham had one of the regular working light shows. And again, we didn't know we were making history, but I 
was able to get my hands on everything to substantiate my work. And again, a tremendous amount of work went into this. Between you and me, and don't tell anybody else, but do you have any of those original posters? Oh, I have them all. You do? And, all, and they're all in the book. Oh, I, I mean, you actually have the original first edition? I actually have edition? the originals for every show that I did at the Fillmore. Ouch. And wow. I had to license them from Bill Graham. You know, being a self-published author means you have to publish, which means you have to do all the things that the publishers would do, and which means license what I didn't own, and digitize what I did own, mm. and what I was able to get from the poster artists that assist me, assisted me for all the shows I produced. I noticed you also had a VW bus at some point in your life. Uh, any possibility that's still around? No, thank God I found a picture of it. I had two of them, and um, when we had our light show, we were on the road all through California and the West, you know, traveling with bands. A lot of these promoters back then wouldn't do a light show or wouldn't do a concert without a psychedelic light show to accompany it. So <laughs> I had a, uh, I found a picture of one of them, which again, I couldn't believe it, but uh, it all of this brings the story together. You know, traditional publishers, if you have a lot of pictures, want you to put the pictures in compartments in the book. Right. And I told an ex Levis, I mean, as a self-published author, I could do what I want. I can tell my story the way I want. And no other publisher were, would have allowed me the freedom to tell my book the way that I told it with all the support material and backup material. The, the term or the title California Slim actually refers to you, correct? Yeah, it was a name that Willie Nelson's road manager gave me. <laughs> and he's passed away. And, you know, the other reason it was important for me to get this book done, I'm 66 years old, and these events all took place between 62 and 70, was that, you know, people people pass along. Mm. And a great number of the people, not a great number, but I was I spent time with Willie for two and a half years between 77 and 80. <clears throat> as an invited guest, as an assistant to work on some movie um some movie projects, but most of all, as a friend. And the friendships I developed with the Willie Nelson family stand today. They're amongst my best friends in the world, and the ones who passed away, one was Pooty, who was Willie's stage manager for many, many years, and we were brothers. And he nicknamed me California Slim. And the story of how that happened is in the book. A uh, great teaser, Andrew. Besides Willie Nelson, who would you say is the most controversial or interesting character that you encountered during that time frame? Well, there were so many. Uh, you know, and if you look at the index, somebody said if you were playing a drop-the-name-of-an-important-person game at someone's house, you would walk away with it. <laughs> and what's important about that is I didn't go looking for any of these people. I had an interest in presenting and being part of the burgeoning music scene in San Francisco. I graduated from high school with the Grateful Dead. We went back all the way. And I was at the first Dead show at a pizza parlor and in Menlo Park. They were called the Warlocks at the time. We didn't know. So to try and pick, you know, somebody, it, it, it it's hard to do because Jerry and Willie are, you know, probably the people that have had the most influence in my life so I'd have to defer to one or the other but um, 
one person who kind of stood out was a guy named Osley Stanley III, who, besides being the quote-unquote acid king, was also a genius um, who put together the Grateful Dead sound and actually financed the early Grateful Dead band. And he, he passed away a few years ago in Australia, but when I was producing my own shows, he was a genius. But again, he's most well-known for being the guy that produced LSD in the Bay Area, before it was illegal, in fact. Um, was that he was such such a brilliant man and so cutting edge um, in so many ways. And he ended up doing the sound for my Jerry Garcia shows. I produced Jerry later on at my nightclub and at, at um, some other auditoriums. When the Grateful Dead were off off the road, Jerry had side bands, uh, bluegrass band, Merle and Jerry, Jerry Garcia, and I produced them all. And Osley would do the sound. And he is, and and will always be in my memory, one of the most um, creative and amazing uh, people I ever met. Tell me the story of Chet Helms and uh, what happened to him. Well, uh, at Altamont, you know, Altamont. A lot of people think of Altamont as the end of the peace and love generation. The fact is, you know, it it was a mistake, and I was following it. Because leading up to it, you know, the Rolling Stones wanted to do a uh, Woodstock type event at the end of their 69 tour uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area. And Sam Cutler, who was the tour manager for them uh, for the 69 tour, was given the responsibility of getting this thing organized. And unfortunately, Altamont kind of fell on him because the Stones abandoned him and left him here and walked away from all the lawsuits. And, and he's a friend of mine, still a friend, a Facebook friend. And uh, I showed up at that at Altamont very early in the morning uh, with a friend of mine, and naturally navigated towards helping out because they needed a lot of help, and I was a known, experienced promoter in the Bay Area. And I ended up on the Chet Helms family dog bus that day, um, and Chet had taken too much of Ozzy's LSD in the morning. Mm-hmm early, as did a lot of people. There were a lot of casualties by 9 o'clock, and uh, I ended up taking care of Chet. Um, not, not physically taking care of him. His wife was there, and there was people who tend to him, but he was in comatose state. He was awake. He was in a yoga position for a good six hours, seven hours, um, you know, for the most part, unresponsive. And he was supposed to be one of the people who was helping organize this. So I, Chet was a great guy. I knew him, and he had the Avalon Ballroom. I never did a light show for him, but um, I knew him, respect him. He was a great guy. He just took too much acid that day. He wasn't the only one. But, uh, you know, I write about that day not so much as being the end of <clears throat> the peace and love and all those things that we so bought into, and I still buy into to a certain degree, but more a, a mistake that went bad, but I was glad I was there to kind of be a shepherd for Chet. In the right place at the right time, it sounds like, and a lot of strange and scary things were happening in the 60s and 70s, and it's interesting that you've chronicled them. Was there anything in this book that you would call controversial about things that well, you yeah, experienced? You, there is. There's a, there's a chapter where I actually, a non-music chapter, that chronicles my uh, marijuana smuggling adventure, bring 200 pounds of pot in from Mexico, and um, a lot of, you know, I'm in the corporate world now, and 
I was concerned that people would be shocked. But by the time I got this bug done and out, marijuana had been decriminalized in California, where I live. And I do have a card for medicinal marijuana. And now two states have legalized marijuana. And the country faces a um, whole new political agenda as it has to do with marijuana. I've never been a drinker. I've never been drunk. Back in those days, I had seen alcohol rip apart families. and It had a negative impact on my family. And um, I, when I got turned on to marijuana, I thought, well, I'm gonna, if I'm going to do something, I'm not going to be beating anybody up. I'm not going to be making a scene in a bar and acting stupid. So, yeah, you know, this, this seems to make sense. Uh, at the time... I was standing on a moral high ground that I had established for myself that people that drank were stupid. And if I brought some marijuana back into my hometown, perhaps people would smoke that and not drink. Now, was it the stupidest thing I've ever done? Of course it was. In hindsight, doesn't make a great story. It's my favorite story in the book. And um, yes, it would still be considered a controversial thing, but this was not had nothing to do with cartels. These were a couple of young guys who didn't know what they were doing mm. and could have gotten in a lot of trouble. How would you introduce your book to somebody? What would you say to them to uh, get them interested? A fun read that is an honest representation of my life from 1962 to 1980. And that's really all I can do. But it was, to me, most important that I pleased myself and got these stories right because it's a history book. I even had to chronicle the set list for Jerry Garcia's shows at my nightclub on certain dates and get the set list right for Amazing. each of the shows. Amazing. Because if you don't, the dead people will find you and correct you. <laughs> yeah, and I wouldn't want to be uh, approached by a dead person. That would be well, no, it's, it's not so much that. <laughs> It's, you know, I claim to have been there for the first Grateful Dead show. Right. I claim, I make a lot of claims in this book. I claim to have been a bodyguard for the Beatles in 1965. And you're right, you know, you better be able to substantiate this. You better have your act together. <laughs> you better have it. And, you know, a few people have found a couple of things. I got the name of an island in Lake Tahoe. I got the wrong bay. It wasn't on Crystal Bay. It was on Emerald Bay. Oh, amazing. But. <laughs> and I left the E out of Creedence Clearwater. That doesn't but sound so bad. That doesn't sound so bad. Was that the most challenging part of writing your book? Absolutely. It, it, it was having to, number one, go back. Fortunately, I, I saved a lot of stuff, but I created the timeline on purpose. And, you know, for, for people out there who um, are struggling to write a book or want to write a book or think about writing a book, um, there is what I call the soul stream, and that's the name of another book by another ex-Libus writer. But he character his book is science fiction, but I like that characterization of being able to get into your soul and stream it, and that's what I was able to do. This is a fascinating book. California Slim, The Music, The Magic, and The Madness, our author Andrew J. Bernstein. Andrew, where can they get a copy of your book? Well, um, the national publicity for the book is just starting, but the book has been out for, for 10 months, uh, and it's available um, through Amazon. It's available at Barnes & Noble, 
and it's available through your bookseller. It is on Ingram, so if it's not on the shelf, and it's not yet on very many shelves, soon to be on shelves, but any bookseller can uh, arrange for you to get this book. Andrew, many of our authors have websites. Do you also have one? I do, Jay, uh, and my reviews are on there. Uh, my website is California Slim 101. Andrew, thank you for joining me today. Enjoyed the visit. My pleasure, Jay. Thanks so much. For Ex Libris on Air, this is Jay Douglas Barker. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on DougieNet.com. Welcome back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for Ex Libris On Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. Our book title today is Skate Key, and our author is Jennifer Renu. Jennifer, welcome to the program. Well, thank you for inviting me. I love the title of your book. It looks charming. It looks like a throwback into the 50s and 40s and 30s, maybe. Tell me about the story. What was the inspiration, the impetus in putting your book together? Well, actually, one day I had been at the beach with a couple of my friends in New Jersey, you know, famous for its Jersey Shore. Um, But we had a beautiful day weather-wise. However, our conversation was very gloomy. And um, we were talking about all of the things that stress us out in our lives. And then all of a sudden, one of us began to reminisce and talk about how it was to be a child uh, back in the day. We're we're baby boomers. And uh, we began laughing and talking about our our, um, roller skating days and uh, playing hopscotch and stickball and, and jump rope. And all of a sudden, the mood changed, and we had a wonderful time. So um, when I went home, I was went to visit my mom, who was uh, suffering from dementia. She now has Alzheimer's disease. Uh, I sat with her, and we began to talk, and she was telling me about when she was a little girl. I grabbed a piece of scrap paper, and I began to write what she was telling me. I thought her story was so cute. She said she roller skated as a child for transportation. Wow. I thought I needed to document this for my grandchildren, my mother's great-grandchildren, because I knew she'd never be able to tell them her story. So that's how it all began. 
I wrote my mother's story. I just put it in my computer, saved it. Next thing you know, my aunt said, I roller skated too. So I needed to document her story too to save for the family. And then I thought, well, wait a minute. So did I roller skate at a different time than they and I wrote my story as well. Next thing you know, all my friends, I was, you know, we're just talking. And next thing you know, I had 22 stories, uh, friends and relatives. And, you know, they each wanted to share their personal stories about what it was like to be a child for them. Now, Skate Key takes place during five decades. We have the Great Depression, World War II, 1950s, 1960s, and 1970s. And it's very diverse. Uh, family backgrounds, um, Jewish, Irish, Italian, African-American, Dominican, German. And they just the one thing in common is that everyone roller skated outdoors. And they, each of the stories is unique. However, we're all tied by this one thing. The skate key. We all shared. <laughs> and the skates you're referring to in your book had eight rollers on it, not just two per side. The metal roller skate that needed a skate key, which is a tool that was used to adjust the roller skate for a proper fit onto the skater's shoe. Um, and that it was an outdoor roller skate, not, not one that you used in the rink. Um, and you were roller skating on streets sidewalks, playgrounds, um, and, you know, everything was outdoors in those days. And you didn't have a helmet. No way. In (laughs) fact, in my story, I talk about almost always having orange knees and orange elbows because every time I fell and I went into, you know, went to my mother for some assistance, she would take out an, a very common antiseptic in those days was called mercurochrome. And mercurochrome was an orange uh, antiseptic that she would put on my knees and my elbows. And believe me when I tell you, that orange stain stayed on your skin for a very long time. And I, I think until maybe the winter when, you know, you were not outdoors roller skating anymore in New Jersey. I remember mercurochrome. And uh, I, I think the, think the red's well, finally worn off. Well, I talk about it in my story. My story is um, titled, Who Was Princess Summer, Fall, Winter, Spring? And your baby boomers, I'm sure, will all remember. Uh, she was the most wonderful American Indian princess on the television show, Howdy Doody. And I wanted to be just like her. Yes. And one of your chapters or one of your stories talks about an ankle saver. What is that? Oh, my. Oh, my. Uh, well, for Patricia, who grew up during the great uh, during World War II, um, she would roller skate outside, outdoors. But the leather strap that went around your ankle uh, sometimes would be very tight and would irritate the skin on your ankle. So she was looking uh, for something that would be soft and cushion that irritation that was between the ankle strap and her skin. So she went into her home and she would look look all over the house for something soft and she went into the into the bathroom to look for some uh, into the medicine cabinet. Band aids were too small and Uh there was only enough gauze on the on a roll to 
wrap around one ankle, so that wouldn't do. But she found a little blue box behind the hot water heater, <laughs> and that little blue box said Kotex. And she didn't know what these pads were for, but they made wonderful ankle savers. She tied them around her ankle. For those uh, people who remember Kotex, <laughs> never had they were sanitary th- napkins. Yes, yes, yes. yes. I, I knew where the story was headed once you began okay, <laughs> telling the okay. tale. Interesting. Her what, mother's. Interesting her mother's what happens. Uh, yeah, yeah, my my wife has a tale, a, a personal story. When we were moving to the country, we had an infestation of fleas, and so she had dog collar fleas, flea collars that she put on her ankles to keep the fleas from biting her, and she forgot to take them off when she went shopping in the uh, supermarket. So it was uh, uh, kind of an odd odd tale that my oh grandkids my. enjoyed well, talking Patricia about. Well, Patricia had no idea what these were used for because she was just still too little to know, but, um, but they served the purpose, and uh, she tied one around each ankle, and she roller skated up and down the streets with her friends, and um, you know, was was a lot more comfortable. <laughs> Who do you think this book is going to appeal to and why? And I understand you've already had some great feedback, so tell us about that. Well, baby boomers are, are you know, very, very much into it because when I've got to tell you this, when I went to my own doctor, you know, I, I said to him, you know, you give people all types of things to make them feel better. And, um, you know, and and, and it's wonderful, but I can give them something to make them feel better. It won't cure them, but it certainly does make them feel better, and it puts a smile on their faces, just as it happened to me and my friends when we were at the Jersey Shore. When you begin to reminisce and you think about the days when you were a child and the fun things that you did, um, it somehow or another does make you smile. And so baby boomers are really enjoying the stories, um, you know, and it helps them to bring back some happy thoughts. Um, like, I, again, the, the young people of today, the children, um, ages uh, 10 uh, through high school, read this book, and they, you know, they a lot of questions are answered uh, for them. Teachers had these children research, like I said, to find out when things were invented, things that children take for granted. Um, and I have had some wonderful experiences. Uh, I've been invited into the schools, um, and there's a poem in Skake called Garrett Mountain. Um, when I was a child, I lived at the foot of Garrett Mountain, and we played there all the time. Um, it was so natural, so beautiful. And then in, in 1968, Interstate 80 came, and all of the homes that were in that area were flattened, and the mountain um, became, a good portion of that mountain became a highway. So the children of today have no idea what that really was like. So my poem says, Garrett Mountain touching the sky, puffy white clouds and birds flying by. Little children dance at your feet playing hopscotch and stickball on Jersey Street. What has happened to your crown? A super highway took you down. Teachers now have children researching to find out the history behind this. In addition to that, I went in and I taught a lesson on personification. And I asked the children for homework 
to write their own poem about something in their neighborhood, an inanimate object. I was invited into the classrooms to hear some of the poetry that the children put together. It was wonderful. And to reward some of the children for their outstanding poems, um, there is a, uh, there's a place here in New Jersey that makes chocolate. And um, I, was, I was asked, would you like us to look? We have a mold somewhere that must be at least 40 or 50 years old where we used to make chocolate roller skates. Absolutely, so they do. And they make chocolate roller skates for me, and I present them as prizes to these children. It's just wonderful. I'm having a great time, and so are the kids. That's spectacular. You also have had Thank some you. positive feedback from other educators. Tell us about that, that story, where your book is headed. Well, I, I, am, I am an educator and have been for, oh, my gosh, over 35 years. But um, I retired from full-time teaching where I taught elementary school and high school. I actually, I taught physics, believe it or not. I was a science teacher. Um, and anyway, after I retired, I thought, my goodness, what am I going to do? And uh, I became a teacher's teacher. I am a professor at Montclair State University in Montclair, New Jersey, and I mentor and teach future teachers. So uh, for me, too, this is, you know, this is something very uh, wonderful in my life that, um, and I'd be very honest with you, I look back at some of the educators that I had in my, in my lifetime, some of the teachers that did influence me, um, and I think about them, and, I, and I, I'm very thankful that they were part of my life, and I, and I certainly do hope that these new teachers will someday reflect and think, I'm really glad that Jennifer Renew was part of my life. Are there underlying themes or messages that you think will come through from the stories that you have uh, have related? There's an uh, underlying, well, there's a title of one of the stories, When Does the Ordinary Become Extraordinary? That story takes place in Washington, D.C., an African-American woman, uh, as a little girl, had a very ordinary life. Um, you know, everything she did was ordinary. She went to ordinary school. Her mother fried chicken with just ordinary seasoning, salt and pepper. However, um, she is in her 80s today and looks back at her life and says, it is extraordinary to see how the country has changed and how today, well, back in the day when she was a child, she, as an African-American child, stood in front of the White House and watched the children um, frolic in the, in the grass on Easter Monday when they had that Easter egg roll. Um, today, she has been to the White House. She has been inside. She isn't looking from the outside in. And so when does the ordinary become extraordinary? That message right there is just so, and it can be for everyone, you know, just think about what it might be someday. Great message. Never give up on the future. You don't know what exactly. it will, what will happen when the future arrives. Another, another uh, story in the, uh, in the Great Depression, um, what would old maples and giant oak trees say about your neighborhood when, uh, you know, you look at those trees and 
they may be 80, 90, 100 years old, some of them, um, and they're outstretched branches and leaves that, you know, if they had human qualities, if they could read, if they could see, if they could hear, if they could, what would they say about the generations that they, you know, that were beneath them? You wonder. Sure. <laughs> Charming book, charming stories that you have recounted. Was there anything challenging about putting these stories into print? Well, it was the first time I had ever written a book. I, I was a science teacher. I had no, no, you know, ever have had an intention of writing a book. So everything was new to me. And, um, and you know, you, you make mistakes, but um, you learn from your mistakes. And believe it or not, I have been asked to write one right now for uh, someone, and, and I'm having fun you know, doing that, too, as a ghostwriter. Um, so we'll see. You know, I'm, I'm having... I, you never know where your you know, future is going to be or what road, when you're on a road, where that road is going to take you. And um, this is a whole new thing for me in my, my retiring years, but I'm having fun. This is a, a book that should be of interest to a lot of people. Wonderful stories and great photos, black and white photos that uh, harken back they to the 30s, 40s. Authentic yes, authentic photos. And I, you know, when I asked people for, uh, you know, they gave me their stories, do you have a, a photo? Some of the people in the earlier chapters, no, because they just didn't have cameras. But, um, you know, but I, they were able to, you know, find some really beautiful and outstanding photos that may have been taken in, in um, you know, in studios, outstanding and wonderful. But, you know, when you look at some of the photos, in fact, in the, in the 1950s chapter with the baby boomers, there is a picture of one of those early television sets that had the knobs that you had to turn to change the channel and to adjust the volume. Another one with a little girl on a bicycle, and you look at that bike, oh my goodness, you say, oh, I know I had one just like that. So the, the pictures are so authentic. And then, too, as like I said, these teachers are, are showing the children the change in our country. Um, in the very first chapter, you're looking at clothing and styles and how children dressed in the 1930s and then when you get to the 1970s, you're looking at a little girl who's wearing jeans and flip-flops and a, another little girl in a brownie uniform. So, you know, you can see the change in, in time um, throughout the book, throughout the book. Uh, in fact, in, in the, one of the earlier stories talks about a little girl in, in the Great Depression having had a rag doll with rhinestone button eyes. And then when you go to the very last chapter and you read about children in the 1970s, they talk about Barbie. Fascinating. Historically yeah. accurate and uh, interesting to read. The title of the book is Skate Key. Our author, Jennifer Renew. Jennifer, where can we get copies of your book? Well, um, Skate Key is available on Amazon.com. Uh, BarnesandNoble.com and uh, Ex Libris is the publisher of the book and you can get it from Ex Libris or you can just log on to my website SkateKeyBook.com 
Thank you, Jennifer, for joining me today. Uh, people will, I'm sure, want to keep up with your activities and uh, read future publications that you may produce. And I'll also add that Skate Key would make an incredible gift for just about anybody of any age. They would enjoy the read. Jennifer, thank you for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me. Rex Libras on Air. This is Jay Douglas Barker. Join Steve Jorgensen next week at the same time as he explores the passion and the inspiration behind the works of today's authors. Right here on Ex Libris On Air.